Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 569. It is Monday the 13th. I guess it's uh, some some folks that are uh, superstitious to be happy that it's Monday and not Friday the 13th. Uh, I don't really care what day the 13th comes on, but I know some people pay attention to things like that. I guess I do, or I wouldn't have mentioned it anyway. What are we going to do today on this Monday the 13th? Well, it's a Monday, so that means we're going to take your questions, comments, commentary, stuff like that by email. Remember, you can get on a show like this, send your question, comment, commentary, article, whatever it is, to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put question for Jack in the subject line. I'll do my best to get your stuff on the air sooner or later. If you send something like three weeks ago and it's really important to you and I haven't done it yet, resend it. It might have got filtered. It might have not made it through my screening process, what have you. Uh, you can send stuff more than once. Please don't send it every day. I'll, I'll block your email if you, you do that. It's just clutter at that point. Before we get into your questions, comments, and commentary by email today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, KnifeKits.com. I said this before, but I love Knife Kits because they let even a guy like me that has no idea what he's doing when it comes to uh, being a bladesmith make a knife. But if you are a master bladesmith, then they have the raw materials for a person like you. That means all of us can partake in the craft of knife making. And guess what, folks? Christmas is coming. I know that's a shock. Um, but for that prepper in your life, you're not sure what to get. What about a really cool knife kit? Uh, something that's got everything they need, even if they've never made one before, where all they really kind of have to do is put it together, do the final fit and finish and sharpening, and uh, maybe a nice uh, sharpening a sh set of sharpening stones to go along with it. Give that person a new skill along with giving them a gift. Just a thought. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth Tactical has all the stuff you need for that tactical lifestyle, man. Uh, Magpul magazines, uh, Maxpedition bags, you name it. Uh, and they also have something that very few people can say. That is, they have an owner that really cares about his customers and really cares about his partnerships. The recent event that we had with uh, the knives being stolen... Uh, the guy on the other end of that that helped us put those knives together, put that deal together through the gear shop, was Jeff at Sawtack. And he's been great about helping us get through that problem. I can't tell you what, but we're almost completely done th with that problem. And the people responsible, well, they may be getting a knock on the door from state or federal authorities. I'm not sure who will show up. Uh, but we pretty much know where they ended up now. And, uh, you know, but the thing is we had a good partner in Jeff that, uh, that hung with us through all that. And that says something about his quality as a person in a business, as a business person, kind of person you want to do business with. So if you need something tactical, check out Sawtooth Tactical before you buy elsewhere. Next up today, um, I want to remind you, today is the 13th. That means Wednesday is the 15th. So last two days for two very important things. One, help us win podcast of the year. In the general category, you can vote at podcastawards.com. Big push here at the end. And next is, also, the 15th is the day that ends the Berkey Guys Contest. Now, all you got to do to join the Berkey Guys Contest is fill out a form and click Submit. You can win a Berkey system or one of some other really cool things from Jeff, at, at, you know, the Berkey Guy, at Directive21.com. Two days left, well, two and a half days left, however you want to call it. But please vote for us 
and make sure you take a shot at winning that system. I mean, I think it's a great contest. Jeff's giving away over $800 worth of stuff, and that's just awesome. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content only available to members. You get some really cool videos. You get some free ebooks. You get discounts to over 25 different vendors. Isn't that cool? Uh, real quick, last, last but not least today, uh, I had Rob on from the American Open Currency Standard on Thursday last week. We did a contest. You go on their Facebook page, and then you posted, uh, found about uh, found out about you on TSP. Now, a lot of you guys that did that aren't my quote-unquote friends on Facebook. So there's no way to reach you. So what I did is I went on that page, and everybody that posted, go check your post, because I told the people that won, they won in a response to their post. If you use Facebook, you'll understand. If you don't use Facebook, it doesn't matter. All I'm saying is if you tried to win the free roll of AOCS Copper last week with the Facebook contest, and either you won that or a free year of MSB, the way to find out is go back to your posts on Facebook and see if I told you you won in response to your post. You know, found out about you on TSP. Guess what? You're a winner right underneath it. All right? You got to email me. I haven't had one person from that contest email me to claim their prize yet. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, we have a lot of really interesting uh, questions today. The first one comes from Ted. Ted asked me a question that um, I get from a lot of people, actually, uh, oh, you know, in different ways, usually not on the show, because it's more of a financial and insurance question than a, <clears throat> a typical survival question. But remember, I believe that insurance is part of your survival planning especially things like life insurance. Well, this involves life insurance for kids. Jack, does it make sense to have life insurance for kids? First, my wife and I both have life insurance on us. We consider it sufficient if either of us were to pass unexpectedly. However, even before the little one was born, we've been inundated with life insurance offers. On one hand, it seems pretty cheap. On the other question is, is it worth it? Cheap crap is still crap, thanks, Ted, in Missouri. Um, here's how I feel about it. The primary reason... There's two reasons we have life insurance, primary and secondary. Primary is to replace the income of the person who's deceased or to replace anything that they do for us that we can't do for ourselves. So if I look at life insurance needs of a husband and what I want to do is look at his income and I want to replace it for, let's say, 10 years, that's fine. But I also might have to look at some other things like, let's say we have a husband in the house and the husband takes care of the pool. Wife has no idea how to take care of the pool. Too much work for her to do, doesn't want to learn. We also need to make sure there's enough life insurance to pay somebody to take care of the pool for 10 years if it's a 10-year plan. And you guys decide how much future life you want to basically purchase uh, out of the income of the person that's deceased. And we look at both partners, and we look at them for their contributions financially, not as human beings, and what they do for us that we can't do for ourselves, and we come up with a number, and that's what we insure against. That's our primary purpose of insurance. You need that kind of insurance. And anything less than five years is absolutely not enough, and five years probably isn't enough. But you absolutely got to have five years. And it's cheap if you do term, because while you're buying this insurance, you're also investing. And at some point, when you're sitting on a great big stockpile of investments in cash and paid off stuff, and you don't have debt, you don't need as much insurance. So when they say, well, it's going to be more expensive when you're 50, hopefully by the time you're 50, you don't need insurance or very much of it. Okay, that's primary insurance. The secondary reason we have insurance is because we have to bury people when they die. Most people that sell you insurance are going to focus on that need if they're trying to sell you a relatively small policy, ten to $20,000. Here's the deal. When a child 
we lose a child. It's the most crushing emotional thing that can ever happen, and we do have to bury them, and it's a time we're not going to be rational, and we probably want to make sure that there's enough money to just do what needs to be done. And it's probably much easier for two two adults, and if they if one said, you know what, I'll cremate me, I don't care, you know, do it as cheap as you can, it's probably a lot easier for a spouse to take that path than looking at the body of a two- or three-year-old child and making the same types of decisions. So we would have a tendency to do things beyond what should be done for a memorial as far as cost, because at that point we're trying to do anything to hold on to the memory. So I think it makes sense to have insurance for the cost of a burial on a child, and that is it, and no more. Because what income does a child produce? None. They are an expense. I'm not saying that they're bad. I love children. But in reality, financially, a child is an expense. So why would we insure an expense? Right? We insure an income. We want to, you know... We have to pay expenses. We won't receive income. So does it make sense? Yes, in small amounts, probably ten to $20,000. Probably in a term policy, as cheap as we can possibly get it, and probably to the point where that child's about 18 years of age. There, this is probably the one place, the one place in the world where maybe we look at whole life. Maybe we look at a $10,000 whole life policy that's paid up by age 18. Maybe. I still say maybe because even though it's cheap, you could probably do better buying the term and then taking the difference and putting it away in a trust fund, using it as additional insurance, and when the child reaches 18 or 21 or 25 or whenever you want to turn the money over, take that money and put it into their life since it wasn't necessary for their death. Just a thought. All right, let's go ahead and take the next question. Okay, this one comes from uh, Stephen. Stephen says, are most areas requiring fluoridation of their water? I've been doing some research on this and have not found any real legislation on it. I know you're a big advocator of removing fluoride from our water and thought you would find the email interesting. Uh, Stephen, I won't use the guy's last name. We are, And this comes from uh, Lonnie Banks at richmondutilities.com. So I guess that's their water utility there. Mr. Uh, Stephen, we are required by the state of Kentucky to fluoride, fluoridate our water between 0.8 and 1.2 parts per million of fluoride. One source, which is the Kentucky River, has approximately 0.2 ppm of naturally occurring fluoride. If you have other questions, let me know. Thanks. Um, here's the thing. I don't know whether the state of um, Kentucky has a law at the state level requiring this. What I can tell you is there is no federal law requiring anybody to do anything as far as putting fluoride in the water. These decisions are made largely locally, and my suspicion is that Mr. Lonnie Banks is full of crap in the state of Kentucky does not require them to do crap as far as putting fluoride in the water. The state of Kentucky probably publishes a guideline that says that the water, when fluoridated, is supposed to be fluoridated between 0.8 and 1.2 parts per million, and that it's not to exceed 1.2 parts per million, because people might start falling over dying, you know, if it went up to something like, you know, 10 parts per million. So there's probably guidelines from the state that set the level of fluoridation. And I would tell you, uh, Stephen, to email Mr. Banks back with a follow-up question, please tell me which law in the state of Kentucky requires this. Because I don't believe that it exists. And if it does, let me know and I'll tell everybody it exists and that I was wrong. Um, here's the thing, though. Like I said, at the federal level, nothing exists that requires fluoridation of water. And again, I know for a fact that the majority of local municipalities decide whether to do this or not. It comes with guidance from the state and possibly federal level. Guidance and requirements are two entirely different things. 
Yes, I'm opposed to fluoride in the water. Let's look at something interesting, he said. One source is the Kentucky River, and it has approximately 0.2 parts per million of naturally occurring fluoride. Okay, so people say, well, it's already there, Jack. 0.2 parts per million. The difference between 0.2 parts per million and 1.2 parts per million is extreme. And the other side of this is, I've said this before, it's not like we can get away from everything toxic in our lives. Grapes have some naturally occurring cyanide in them. Okay? Plain and simple. They do. Not enough to kill you. Tiny, tiny trace amounts of cyanide. Should we take our grapes and add just a little bit more cyanide? Not enough to kill you, mind you. Just a little bit more cyanide to our grapes. Does that make any sense at all? Those little white button mushrooms you get from the store. There's a toxin in them, similar to the toxin in the destroying angel mushroom. The big giant ones with the rings around them that will kill you dead if you eat a couple of them that grow in your backyard. Those, the same toxins in both mushrooms. In the little white button mushrooms, it's in a tiny, minuscule amount that the human body has no trouble processing out of its system. In the big destroying angel mushroom, also called the death angel by some, it will kill you dead. Does it make sense for us to just take a little bit more of that compound and inject it into our button mushrooms. Because effectively, when we say that some water has fluoride in it already, and we add a little bit more to it, so what's the harm? We're saying the same thing. Fluoride is a toxin, whether it's naturally occurring or whether it's put in there by human beings. It doesn't belong in our water. It should be removed. Most likely, your uh, your provider's not going to do it for you. So do it for yourself. Get a Berkey system, get the fluoride additional filters to it, and use it. Um, do I think, here's, I want to explain the non-extreme view here. Say I'm over at your house, and you don't have a Berkey system yet, and I'm thirsty, and you offer me a glass of water from the tap. Am I going to drink it? Yes, of course I am. I'm just not going to put that, because people do it every day, with minimal consequences, other than, you know, it could have something to do with the overall dumbing down of our nation, the passivity of our nation, the, the, the compliance that we have with our government, because repeated exposure to things builds up over time. But that one glass of water, I'm not going to fall over and die. So if I'm thirsty, yeah, I'll drink it. This is called moderation. This is a moderate viewpoint on a sensitive issue. Uh, hopefully, it'll help you share my view because I am moderate on it. But I also look at it this way. It's a toxin. It doesn't belong in there. If I can take it out, I will. And I'll tell you this. If you put a well in somewhere and have the water tested and fluoride levels in your water are high enough, they'll tell you you've got to take it out so you can drink it. And then your officials turn around and put it back in, into the public water. This is why I'm so big on finding your own water sources if you can. Get into a rural area if you can and provide yourself your own water. Because you know what investors are calling water now? Blue gold. They're privatizing our water reserves. Folks, I couldn't make it up if I tried. Do some research on it. You'll be shocked at what's going on with our water reserves around the world. All right, next up, this comes from Matthew. Matthew says, Jack, I want you. I want to thank you for introducing me to prepping. When I first started listening to your show on Stitcher Radio, whatever that is, I'd like to know what Stitcher Radio is, folks. Let me know. I was expecting an Alex Jones-type show, but it's not. You give real answers to real problems. You also got me thinking. My question was inspired by my rich, superficial cousin, a neighbor of yours, actually. She lives in Midlothian uh, and just got a huge canary diamond wedding ring. It costs upwards of $20,000, I'm told. Diamonds are not a commodity like gold and silver. What is the value of having diamonds? Is there any utilitarian use other than a status symbol? Thanks. Matthew from Georgia. 
Uh, Matthew from Georgie. Here's the thing. I get this question about diamonds and jewels all the time. Uh, mainly from people that want to know, do I make this part of my investing? Um, can you? Sure. Should you? I'm not. Uh, but I would understand why somebody might make precious gems part of their investment portfolio. Here's my issue with a diamond for, and people say, well, you know, when a shit hit the fan for barter and every, you know, can it, can it do what gold and silver do in a different way? And, and the answer is no, it cannot. It cannot be gold or silver because it is not gold or silver. It is a gem, not a piece of metal. And here's the problem with that. The value of a diamond is subjective. It involves somebody sticking a little loop in their eye and looking for imperfections and judging the quality, the clarity, the fire, the cut. I guess there's three C's that they say with diamonds. I'm not a diamond expert. But if you can do all of those things, there is a relatively stable pricing platform for a diamond. Um, but when I go to barter with you, you have to trust me that that diamond is indeed what I say it is. I could have a little piece of paper that says it is, but come on. Gold and silver are easy to verify. If I hand you a gold, a silver bar, let's say, and you're worried that I've drilled a hole in it and filled it with lead, you can cut it in half. It's pretty soft. You can look. right? You can weigh it. We, we can look at a standard size dimensions of a silver bar, and it should weigh a certain weight. We can do the same thing with gold. See, gold and silver are easy to verify. If I have a recognizably stamped mintage on that silver or gold piece, then it's pretty reasonable to assume it says one quarter ounce fine gold, .999 from Sunshine Mining Company. Everything else kind of checks out with it. It's probably a quarter ounce of fine gold. When I hand you a, a ruby and I say, that's, uh, you know, this many carats and it's got this cut and it's worth X dollars, how do you know that? See, that's why one is concrete and absolute in a market price in the world. And the other one has a market price in the world that is highly subjective. I would also tell you that gold and silver are used as currency and have been used as currency many, many times in the past. Some people say gold is money and cash isn't money. That's nonsense. You know, the gold is money argument, you know what that is? That's designed to get you to buy gold. It's marketing spin and it's bullshit. Gold is no more money Listen to me. Hear me all the way out before you get mad. Gold is no more money than dollar bills are money. Money is an agreement between people in an economy. As long as they agree to exchange dollars, dollars are just as real as gold. Until that agreement is removed, because confidence is lost in the dollar, then the gold can retain and the dollar can't. But there are times when the gold could be completely worthless in the economy. If everybody's starving and there is no food, no amount of gold is going to get somebody to get rid of a sack of beans. The beans will be money in that economy. All right, You follow me there. The problem with something like a gem is it's far more likely to become devalued in such a situation than gold and silver. As long as there is some level of commodity as far as food and medicine and everything else available, the odds that gold and silver would be pushed out as a means of exchange are the lowest of any commodity that there is that's ever been used as a currency. Okay, so it's a probability issue. When I look at gems... You know, how likely would you be to take a couple diamonds that, for all you know, could be cubic zirconia when I'm trying to do that, that deal with you? 
And, and which is more likely to be pushed down by, by a declining economy? Gold and silver typically rise in a declining economy because they have intrinsic worth from the investor viewpoint. Whether it's real or not doesn't matter. It's, see, that's the thing about currency. It's not whether it's real or not. It's what people think and how people act and pe how people behave in given scenarios and what they turn to in those scenarios. And traditionally in those scenarios, turn to gold and silver. What happens to gem prices in that type of economy? They go down because they're primarily a vanity purchase, if that makes sense. So I don't like gems for that use, for all the reasons I just gave you, not just because I think gold is real money. In fact, I, again, I tell you what, when you hear somebody tell you gold is money, They have either been lied to to a point where they believe it, or if they're on the TV or the radio, they want you to call them up and give them your fake money for their real money, and you have to ask why they want it so much. Tell that rep from Goldline or any of these gold sales companies that you're on the phone with that says, man, you need to get into this. Ask them, hey, at the end of the week, do they pay you in gold coins or cash? All right, And, and see if that drives a point home. All right, next question. This one comes from Shannon. Shannon says... Three questions. Number one, I understand that the Goldman Sachs sells treasury bonds to the, the Ben Bernanke. I'm assuming they aren't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. What do they make on the deal? Um, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about this. First of all, when they say, when, the, when Shannon says the Goldman Sachs and the Ben Bernanke, uh, that's from a little video I posted that if you haven't seen yet, you should. And I'll put a link to it today uh, where I have it posted on The Real Truth About Money, uh, trtam.com. And uh, I think you'll be shocked if you haven't seen it before. It will make you angry and laugh at the same time. But here's how this works. What you have to understand is that people like Goldman Sachs are the bond traders of the world. They have an extreme ability to influence the price and cost of bonds. And they have access to buy bonds from all over the world. Okay. So when we hear this thing with quantitative easing and the Fed making new money, here's what's really going on. We've gotten to a point where the United States needs new money, and there's only so much money out there in the form of bonds that can be purchased. When the Fed wants to make new money, what they do is they go to a bank or they go to anybody, a country, and they buy the bonds for cash. Okay, But they don't actually give them money. This is the scam. When the Fed buys a bond, they create money. They enter numbers into a computer, and I'm the bank of Jack, and I sell them a $1 million bond for $1 million. It doesn't ever work out that evenly, but let's just say it does. Okay? So I sell them that. Now, what they do is they put those numbers in a computer, and all of a sudden there's a $1 million in the bank of Jack, and they take the bond. And now the government, the United States Treasury, owes, owes the money plus interest to the Fed, and I have my $1 million. But the million dollars is brand new fake phantom digits. Put it, it's the only, if you don't understand that part, the rest of it doesn't make any sense at all. So again, the Federal Reserve, when it buys a bond, does not use money. It types numbers into a computer, and the act of typing those numbers in the computer creates new money in the economy. So how does this work with quantitative easing in the Goldman Sachs, right? Well, the last act, the last act of a desperate republic is just making the money without buying the bonds from anybody. The, in fact, the one thing wrong with this video that it doesn't get is what it means when the Fed goes to the Treasury and buys the bond directly. If the Fed does that, they're buying their own debt. And the way they do that is they go to the Treasury, and they enter numbers in a computer, and it goes into the Treasury, and they create the money, and the bond goes directly to the Fed. This looks really bad. 
So they want to hide the fact that there's not enough new bond takers and not enough people out there holding a bond willing to sell them back to the Fed to create the new money. So they announce we're going to buy X amount of bonds and here's how much we're going to pay for them. Goldman Sachs can then go to the Treasury and buy the bonds or they can go into the bond market and anywhere they can find a bond that they can buy and purchase and sell for and buy for less than they're going to sell to the Fed. And they already know exactly when the Fed's going to buy, what the Fed's going to pay, and you have to be big to sell to the Fed. So they can go to the smaller shops that can't sell to the Fed and buy older bonds. They can buy any kind of bond they want. It's not like they have to be bonds that were just issued yesterday. It's anything that's floating out there. And the bond is going to have a value based on its interest rate it's carrying and the maturity date on the bond. So a bond that's going to mature next week would probably sell for less right, than a bond that's going to mature uh, in, in five years. So Goldman put packages together the exact types of bonds that the Fed wants to buy, all ready to go, and then when a quantitative easing happens, the Fed comes to the Goldman Sachs and says, here's your money by typing numbers into a computer. The Goldman gets the money, the Fed gets the bonds, but the Goldman gets a, a, they get a profit for doing this. And they already know what the profit is before the trade is executed. Before they buy the first bond up or choose which bonds they're already holding they're going to sell back. It is the ultimate insider trading scheme. That's that's how it works out with the Goldman Sachs. So maybe they buy a billion dollars from Goldman Sachs. Uh, and maybe Goldman Sachs actually sells that billion dollars worth of bonds they bought for, you know, I don't know, $1.1 billion. So he's made $100 million in 30 days for doing nothing. For being told, go get these together. <laughs> Here's how much we'll pay you. No, don't pay that much. That's how it works. Next question that comes from Shannon. What is a basis point? A basis point is a financial term that sounds really complicated, doesn't mean a whole lot, uh, other than it is, is one one-hundredth of a percentage point. So if something goes up 50 basis points, it's half a percent. If it goes up 25 basis points, it's a quarter of a percent. And that can apply to just about any kind of financial instrument, whether it's a treasury bond or any other anything else out there that carries a, uh, a percentage yield against it can, will move by basis points. How much you pay for a mortgage will move by basis points. Because it just sounds cooler, I guess, to say it went up 10 basis points than 10% of 1%. It's, it's easier to explain. And the basis point is it's based on 100, right? So a full percentage is based on 100 points. So it's the basis of the point. Make sense? Pretty simple. Next one. How far does the dollar have to inflate before, before counterfeiting becomes cost per unit unprofitable? In other words, how, how, how worthless does our money have to become before a counterfeiter wouldn't even bother to make it? Um, See, that's really a function of the economy. It doesn't matter how much inflation there is. If there's still a place you can go out and spend money, people will still counterfeit it. Because as long as the economy's functioning, I can just counterfeit the big enough bill to make it work. In fact, this is, of course, what the governments eventually do in the death spiral. You know, the governments start counterfeiting the money. That's when you buy your own debt... When you do the nonsense like quantitative easing, basically we're counterfeiting. We say, here's the rules of the system, right? 
The rules of the system are somebody has to be willing to loan the government money to create a treasury bond, and then the Fed can buy the bond and create new money. And as long as that's the system, that it's not a great system, but at least it's a system. And when we do things like, hey, we're going to buy the bonds, here's how much we're going to pay gold and go get them, and we'll pay you a profit to flip them for us, we're cheating. We're counterfeiting the system. And if the Fed goes direct to the Treasury and buys them, in some ways it's even worse. Because then it's completely transparent what's going on. Just saying. So as far as your question as a whole, I, I really don't know. Uh, I, I would tell you that most counterfeiters are just counterfeit a bigger bill. All right, next question, uh, Jack, and this comes from Matt. Matt says, do you have any suggestions regarding a hasty bug-out location? I figure there are two categories, short and long-term. A short-term hasty bug-out would be a place for me to hole up if I were en route to a uh, bug-out, but prevented from reaching it due to other circumstances. Maybe an earthquake destroys bridges trapping me going forward, reaching my bug-out location. A long-term hasty bug-out location could be needed if I was on vacation or traveling or otherwise far from home when a disaster happens. Do you have any suggestions for places to hole up or how to approach the situation with a rational mind? Thanks for your time. Kind of all over the place, Matt. You really are. Because um, what you're saying is, how do I get a bug-out location without a bug-out location? I mean, the reality is the way you set up a bug-out location is you set up a place that you own and or control, and if things get out of hand where you're at, it's a fallback location. You go from where you are to there. You're on vacation or not, it has nothing to do with whether you need to bug out. Short-term or long-term, right? I mean, the only thing that you have is an option for the short-term need. If you can't get to your prepared place or you don't have a prepared place, is to kind of make do with what you got wherever you end up. So that's where I say things like, you know, there's people that have these fantasies that they're going to go live in the National Forest. It's completely ridiculous. But a short-term solution where you're in a regionally affected area, it's not so ridiculous after all. In other words, I would much rather pack up my camping gear and go spend a couple days in a state park if my house was destroyed by a tornado. And the whole neighborhood was just roped off, and they said, I didn't have relatives, and we do. You know, we that case, we'd probably go see, uh, stay with relatives. But let's say it was a big tornado, Oklahoma City-level tornado. And all my family around here is pretty close. Let's say we all got wiped out to nothing. They have things roped off for uh, to prevent looting and things like that. There's just nothing here. And I didn't have the BOL up in Arkansas. Well, I'd much rather take you know what I did have if I could manage it, and hopefully we had time to get out of here, and go stay in a place like a park rather than stay in a gymnasium in a shelter. Um, I would rather control my own destiny. But that's got to be the only time that's going to work. I'm telling you right now, these people that think if we have the big one, the big giant collapse, that they're going to go live in Yellowstone, you're out of your mind. It's not going to work. It can't happen. There's so many reasons it can't happen, but the sheer numbers of idiots that are completely unprepared going out there too into those unsanitary conditions are going to be a big part of why. Um, you know, Don't think you're the only one that's figured this out or thought of it. And even if you know what you're doing, the problem is there's going to be a hell of a lot of people out there that don't know what they're doing. That's the best I can do for you, Matt. I really don't know if I'm getting the point of your question. If you want to resend it and clarify, that's fine. But when it comes down to bugging out, I've done about a, you know 10 shows on bugging out and bug out locations and bug out vehicles and bug out bags. Uh, hours and hours and hours of stuff there. Just type bug out in on the search box and you can find it and listen to it. And if you don't find what you're looking for there, let me know. And I will try to do better for you. But again, I mean, I don't care if you're on vacation or at home. I, I, when you say you know suggestions for a bug out, 
I don't really get it. I'm sorry. Um, the, the only point of bugging out is because somewhere else is safer. That's it. That is the only. You don't do it because it's a cool thing to do. You don't do it because you wrote down that was your plan. You do it because in any given situation, it's safer to go there than to stay here. If you don't have a better place to go, you stay where you're at. The, the rules of survival when it comes to something like that is you move to the, the place with the greatest probability of long-term survival. So here, um, let's say that we have a major flu pandemic. I'm going to Arkansas. Why? I'm more isolated there. I'm less likely to be picking up the infection from somebody else. I could be completely, we could go live there for six months and never see another human being. The odds of us becoming infected in that scenario are very, very low. Um, Dallas has riots. We haven't sold the house yet. They might spill over into the suburbs. You know, unless it gets really, really like end of the world bad, I'm staying here to defend my home. It's all about, you know, making that determination. So where you go, you know, you have to think about what's available to you. Sometimes bugging out is a hotel room. It really is, if you have no other option. Sometimes that's, I got 10 hotels listed in this city that's four hours away, and everybody's going to be trying to do it, so I've got them on, you know, in my documentation package, and the second I need, I, I know I need to go, I'm calling each one until I find one that will take a reservation. In fact, I'm going to make two reservations, and when I get to my hotel that's, that I'm going to stay at, I'm going to call and cancel the other one, and they can release the room to somebody else, because I'm going to make damn sure I have a place to stay. Sometimes that's a bug out. And people say, that doesn't sound very survival-ish. Hey, you know what? It all depends on the threat. I got some jack clown. I was going to say ass clown. I don't want to say jack clown. Some ass clown on YouTube giving me hell over my video when our truck broke down because I was talking about the practicality of a preparedness thing like carrying a cell phone and having a AAA card. He goes, oh, yeah, because that's really going to help you if the shit hits the fan. And there's no You're an idiot. You're an idiot if you think that way. We have to always think about rational le levels of severity. If my car's broken down, AAA is one of the best preps that I can have. If my car's broken down on the side of the road in a, in a snowstorm where they can't get to me, hopefully I have other things available to, to me. So I can make do until I can get out of there or I can extract myself. But to write off the simple prep, like the hotel room, because, well, that won't help me if the whole world falls apart, means we're only betting on complete failure. And that's always a mistake. It is as foolish to bet on 100% failure as it is for the people around us that we shake our heads about that bet on 100% success. We have to be prepared for both extremes. Next, uh, Jack, this from GIF. GIF, what do you think about buying a good inverter and connecting it to your car as a makeshift generator instead of buying a standalone generator? I figure cars can always have a lot of fresh gas and efficient engine. Hook up the inverter and you're good to go. A friend gave me this idea. I wasn't sure about it because I don't know anything about generators. would like to know your thoughts on this GIF. Um, it's not a bad idea, but honestly, you have a limitation. Most car batteries with a typical inverter, you could buy maybe a 750-watt inverter, but most car batteries are only going to let you draw about 500 watts of power. Additionally, you have to run that great big internal combustion engine to recharge the battery, and if you don't run the car and you just plug the inverter in, you run a risk of decharging the battery to a point where the car won't start, So you have to run the car sufficiently to maintain the charge. 
that means that you have to have the vehicle outside, not secure in a, uh, you know, in a, in a garage, obviously. You kill yourself with CO2. That's no, generator's got to be outside as well. But there's a difference between a great big car sitting in your driveway during a disaster on, on idle and a generator out your back window with a cord running it. Most of us can't get our cars into our backyards, at least to even hide it. You see what I'm saying? There's a security risk there. It's a good first solution. It's a good thing to have. Uh, we have um, the little backup Power Dome EXs in all our vehicles, and we also have a standalone inverter in all our vehicles because there's a tremendous value there. We're not going to run the house with it. We're not even going to run part of the house with it. It doesn't have the capability. It's not sufficient. It's two different technologies. So it's a stopgap. Uh, it's not a complete solution. Let's go ahead and take another one. Um, Brian. Brian says, can you recommend an EDC protection? Uh, I could use for my wife. I like to provide my wife with something she can keep in her purse for EDC protection. That means everyday carry, if you guys, anybody that doesn't know that. I'm not sure if a small folding knife or pepper spray would be better. Firearms out of the question as we live in California. She spends a lot of time working at our kids' school. Any ideas? Pepper spray. Pepper spray, pepper spray, pepper spray, pepper spray, pepper spray. Why? Because with pepper spray, I don't have to touch you to use it. With a knife, she's got to get the knife out. She's got to open the knife in a panic situation. And she's got to start stabbing a guy. And contrary to what a lot of people believe, you can take a fairly long knife, let's say a three to four inch blade, and stab somebody about 25 times or more. If you don't stab them in the right place, they can take the knife away from you still and beat the hell out of you and kill you with it. When someone can't see, when someone can't see, they're pretty easy to get away from. All right? Now, I'm going to get all kinds of people writing me emails today. I already know, because it happens every time I talk about pepper spray, about, I know this guy, and he can eat pepper spray. and it, Fine, whatever. Well, I know people that got stung by a bee fell over and died. That doesn't mean I'm going to run around scared of bees or run around with a machine gun machine gunning bees. I'll also tell you that the, the concept of this, this tolerance to this, this stuff is overblown. It's, it's very overblown, especially when you understand civilian use of something like pepper spray is totally different than law enforcement use. As a civilian, as a civilian, when you pull pepper spray, what you're saying is, I'm in danger, and I need to stop the danger. So you take the pepper spray, and you spray the hell out of the attacker, and then you do something a lot of men have trouble doing, you run away. You get the hell out of the situation, and then you try to reassess, do I, is this person still pursuing me? Are there other pursuers? Are there other attackers? Do I call the police now? Do I put myself into a better defensive posture now? Do I, you see what I mean? Where when a police officer sprays somebody, they then have to put them in the handcuffs and get them into a car. Those are such different worlds. The fact that there's been police officers that haven't gotten enough effect from pepper spray to, uh, to be able to subdue, doesn't really have a lot to do with whether or not that attacker is going to be able to truly pursue you, especially if you keep hitting them with it. So in the purse, not one of those little tiny pen-sized ones, big old good-sized hairspray can size of, of pepper spray. I really love a product called Inferno. That's from, made by Cold Steel. Uh, we keep a can at the front door. My wife keeps a can in her purse. I keep a key ring size uh, as part of my EDC. It's the best stuff that I've found. Uh, but, you know, any of it works but definitely that over the knife. She should probably still carry a knife. There's so many reasons to carry a knife other than defense, but the defense tool should be the pepper spray. If it's going to be the purse, you need to rig something up that when she opens that purse, it's right at the top every time and always accessible. And she needs to practice with drawing it out so that when she draws it out, her hand naturally comes to where it needs to to spray it because it needs to be lightning fast if it's ever needed. 
All right, so that's there is no doubt which one of those two is better. Next one. Here's an easy one from Neil. I get this question all the time, folks. I'm going to give you the answer you don't want to hear today to it. Uh, I've been trying to get the vinegar smell out of a pickle bucket I got from a sub shop. I've tried lemon juice, baking soda, Dawn soap, and air drying outside. Nothing has worked. Any suggestions, Neil? Throw it away and go buy a bucket that's food grade. That's the answer. Quit trying to make a vinegar-soaked bucket not smell like vinegar. If you want to use a vinegar-smelling bucket to store anything, make pickles in it. That's what it's good for. Otherwise, throw them away. I'm sorry. By the time you've dumped a box of baking soda, a bunch of Dawn soap, uh, and a bunch of lemon juice in that bucket, you've spent enough money on things trying to get the smell out, you could have went ahead and bought a daggone bucket. So there you go. That's all of you guys with the pickle buckets. Give up on the pickle bucket and look to another solution. <clears throat> I know somebody's going to email me, I put this in there and now it doesn't smell anymore. Okay, you can eat your pickle-smelling rice five years from now because it's not gone, it's still in there really doesn't ever go away. I'm sorry, it might be mitigated, but it's there, and it's probably going to go into your food, and it's going to get worse the longer it's closed up. Take that pickle bucket you think you fixed, put a lid on it, sit it in the sun for a day, and go take the lid off and stick your head in there. All right? I just saying get rid of them. Uh, next one. Uh, this comes from Matt. Uh, Matt, hey, Jack, brief. Uh, tankless water heaters are save money and energy over traditional water heaters. Never heard you talk about tankless water heaters. They're common in England when I live there, but I never really hear or see them here in the U.S. They do require high-specific energy to operate, either gas or electric, but they have the advantage they only run when you use hot water. Thus, you're not wasting energy on keeping water hot. Even new water heaters are a little warm on the outside, meaning they're always losing heat and costing you money. Maybe you could comment on a call-in type show. Matt, um, absolutely. Uh, if you don't have the option of doing solar hot water or what have you, um, and it, definitely if you're about to replace a hot water heater, tankless is the way to go. They're actually everywhere. If you go to Home Depot, Lowe's, any of the major stores that sell hot water heaters, and you go to hot water heater section, you will find a great deal of options for tankless heaters. Basically, these are heat-on-demand technologies. The water passes through, it's heated instantly, and that way there's no reserve that you're constantly keeping warm. Repercussions. One, very high specific energy needs, even higher than a tanked water heater. Okay, So power goes out, It is out. Very few. You're gonna have to have a really heavy-duty generator to run uh, a tankless hot water system. So that's that's number one. Number two, zero reserve. If your heat, if your electricity goes out right now, and it's because some ass clown with a backhoe two blocks away dug up a, a cable and and made a big fireball come out of the ground, and the utilities are responding within about. Probably two to three hours at most, you're going to have power again. And in a lot of situations, it's going to be 30 minutes, and they're going to do some rerouting with redundancy, and you're going to have power. This doesn't apply at the end of the world, but again, we prepare for the everyday to the insane. So in a lot of everyday situations, power outages are a couple hours or half a day or a day. If that happens, and even if you think it's going to be a day, and let's say you were outside in the garden and you came in and you stink and you smell, but you were going to take a shower in about an hour, you're going to go out and do a little bit more work before the day was over, but you come in and the power's out now and you don't have a way to run your hot water heater. Well, you run your little hiney upstairs, you turn the water on, there's plenty of hot water for one or two showers, maybe you and the spouse or you and the kids or whatever. Everybody takes a very quick shower, everybody gets clean, and now we wait for the power to come back on. Tankless hot water heater doesn't happen. Another thing, you have a reserve of water in your water tank. If you have a 75-gallon hot water heater and the water gets cut off, there's 75 gallons of fresh, clean, potable water available in your hot water heater. 
I'm not saying that's a reason to keep it. I'm just saying these are things you have to think of when you switch over. Um, personally, I would go with a gas version if possible. And if I live somewhere without gas service, I would bring in gas tanks. And you can do a lot of heating for a very long time with a relatively small amount of propane with that type of arrangement. It's also very similar very similar to the way that some campers use propane to heat hot water. Now, I haven't looked into these enough to know if there's a big difference in cost and availability between a natural gas and propane model. A lot of times, natural gas products can be converted to propane with a relatively low cost. So, it may be an off-grid option. Not sure, but definitely it's more energy efficient. There is no doubt about that. So thank you for that one, Matt. Let's go ahead and take the next question. Um, guess what? NASA now says if we double the CO2 in the atmosphere, double the CO2 in the atmosphere, um, we will have a total uh, rise in global temperatures of 1.64 degrees Celsius. And remember, the doomsday scenarios revolve around 3 to 4 degrees Celsius of, of, of uh, temperature. Now, again, we would have to double, double, this is from NASA, right? National Aeronautics and Space Administration, not Alex Jones, Inc., not Jack Spierko, Inc., not the fringe survivalist uh, community.com. From NASA, we have to double the CO2 to get 1.64 degrees of warming. And why? Well... We have to do that because, see, CO2 does something I've been telling you it does for years now. It makes plants grow. And when we grow enough plants, it has a reduction on the global temperatures. So these little incremental increases in CO2, because remember, 0 0.033, 33 hundredths of 1% is how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. That this big boogeyman that they keep telling you about. So let me read this to you. Uh, this is on the register, and it is titled New NASA Model. Double CO2 means just 1.64 degrees Celsius of warming. Important to get these things right, says scientists. I guess so. Since we're talking about changing the entire scope of the world uh, with taxation on this stuff, it would be important by Lewis Page. Uh, Lewis Page says, a group of top NASPA buffins says the current climate models predicting global warming are far too gloomy and have failed to properly account for important cooling factor, which will come into play as CO2 levels rise. According to Lahore Banua of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, again, not Jack Spierko, but a guy from NASA at the Goddard Space Flight Center and other scientists from NASA, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, existing models fail to accurately include the effects of rising CO2 levels on green plants. As green plants breathe CO2, did you know that? That horrible pollutant is breathed by green plants. In the process of photosynthesis, there's another big scientific word, they also release oxygen. The only reason that there is any air for us to breathe. More carbon dioxide has more important effects on them. In particular, green plants can be expected to grow as they find it easier to har harvest carbon from the air around them using energy from the sun, thus introducing negative feedback into the warming carbon process. Most current climate models don't account for this at all. Huh. Really shocking. I would have never known. According to Busana, some do, but they fail to accurately simulate the effects. Huh. They don't allow for the fact that plants in a high CO2 atmosphere will down-regulate or use water more efficiently. 
gee, so if we had a little bit more carbon in our atmosphere, our plants would use less water and we would have more efficient use of our water. This global warming thing starting to sound like a pretty good idea. <laughs> Baana and her colleagues write, increase in precipitation contributions primarily to the increase of evapotransportation rather than surface runoff consistent with observations and results in additional cooling effect not fully accounted for in previous simulations with elevated CO2. I'll let you read the rest of the article for yourself. All I'm saying is that mountains upon mountains upon mountains of evidence that we've been lied to by the global warming scare tactics are piling up and the true believers will always cling This thing has become a religion, not a science. A faith, not logic. And why do I even bring it up? Why do I bring this controversial subject into the TSPN sometimes? Because you can't be bullshitted by your government into having one more shred of liberty or one more dime of your productivity taken away from you. And I want to say this one more time about global warming and cap and trade. Cap and trade is a license to pollute. I'm going to tell you what I know about coal mining. And then you justify it against cap and trade, and you tell me how it helps. I've seen coal mining operations for my entire childhood in Pennsylvania that were places where they raped the land with something called strip mining. I've seen holes that looked like a nuclear bomb went off, where they basically just dig a hole and rip whatever the hell they want out of it. Today, they're more inclined to do something called mountaintop removal, where Millions of acres are just evaporated into explosions, and entire mountaintops are gone. When this happens, wherever coal is, there's also a compound called sulfur. Now, sulfur, that doesn't sound too dangerous, does it? But sulfur does something when it's exposed to oxygen that a lot of us never really think about. It's called oxidation, or sulfur oxide. Basically, it's kind of like rust. So all of these streams around these, these coal mines that the sulfur runoff goes into, the sulfur count of the water goes up to an excessive level, the water literally rusts. Yes, you look in these creeks and they're orange. Orange like a rusted piece of metal. But it's not sticky, rough, and, 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 and like it would cut you like normal rust. It's a slime, a toxic sulfur oxide slime. And it kills everything in the stream. That's just one of the things that coal mining, when practiced this way, does. What else does it do? You get coal slush. What's coal slush? It is the most disgusting black mixture of coal remnants and rock and sludge and sulfur and mercury there is in the world. It is so black when it gets into your clothing, nothing will take it out. And they have big piles of it everywhere, and the water runs through that, and the water that comes out is literally black like oil. It also, you know, from the mining and from burning of the coal, released large amounts of mercury into our atmosphere. And then the rain brings the mercury down into our oceans. And today, if you eat tuna fish, it's probably more toxic with mercury than the flu shots that were worried about them putting the mercury in. And I could keep going, but I won't. I think I've made my point. Coal mining is environmentally dangerous. It causes huge amounts of pollution. It destroys entire ecosystems, and it's bad for the planet. I think I've made a better case than, uh, CO2 makes it warmer. So why, if all of these people that claim to want to protect the planet, really want to protect the planet, why are they worried about the air that you breathe and exhale, because you produce CO2, instead of removing mountaintops, raping the land, dumping mercury and sulfur into our water systems, destroying countless acres of forest. Why? Because cap and trade doesn't stop any of that. That's why. 
Cap and trade just means the coal company gets some credits and they get to do whatever they're doing and they're no longer polluting because they're carbon neutral because they have credits. And if they don't get enough credits from the government, the government gives somebody else credits and the coal company buys the credits and the banks make a ton of money transferring credits from one person to another. We have a new fiat currency and the mercury and the slush and the sulfur still flows into your water, into your air. So don't tell me I'm not an environmentalist when you tell me why I'm wrong about global warming. Google one name, Maurice Strong. Find out who he is. Find out about how he launched the Green Movement in 1978. Find out how all the environmentalists in 1978 were concerned about global cooling. And find out how in the 80s they switched when they could see the warming coming. Because it didn't fit anymore. And then take things like this NASA thing and ask yourself, do we need to give them any more control? Or do we need to say, you know what, you're worried if you want alternative energy? Build alternative energy then, damn it. Don't tax us for the bad energy, build the good. You're worried about pollution? Stop blowing up mountaintops, okay? Right? You're worried about our oceans? Stop putting mercury out. Don't worry about CO2, folks. It's not the villain. All of these dioxins, trioxins, all these industrial byproducts. Have you noticed that you haven't heard anything in the past 10 years about any of the real pollution? All you hear about is CO2. Why? Because they can control you with CO2 because you can't see it or taste it. So when they tell you it's getting better, you don't know whether they're lying to you or not. But if they tell you they're not blowing up mountaintops anymore, and they blow up a mountaintop, well, gee, a guy with a camcorder can go, there was a mountaintop there yesterday, look at it now. That's why this stuff's important. All right, next one. What do you think about how hyperinflation will play out? How long does it last? How does it end? Maybe do a show on it. One guy said it could start as early as six months from now, and this comes from Craig. Craig, the main reason I put you on the show is for your last statement. One guy said, okay, stop listening to these people, folks. All these people are like, hyperinflation is going to start in the next six months. Whenever somebody says anything like that, turn them off, never listen to them again. They don't know their ass from a hole in the ground. Because none of us can predict that. Because the ass clowns at the top, inside the Fed, and the elite banking layer, those people can change that anytime they want to. This whole economic system is one big manipulation. All that money they're printing, they can contract that money supply so quickly you'd be shocked. When they say they have control on this, they don't have total control. But they have more than we are willing to acknowledge that they have in most situations. How does hyperinflation start? Prices start going up. What does it look like in the beginning? It looks like recovery. It looks good. Don't you know that? Inflation looks good when it starts out. Prices go up. So companies are selling products they built at yesterday's prices for today's profits. So their profit margins go up. When the profit margins in a business goes up, what do they do? They expand. Growth at all cost. That's what this whole economy is run on. When they start hiring, more people have jobs. So more people have money. So more people spend money. So that kicks inflation up another notch. And the whole process starts going like a bubble. The question is, when do we reach a runaway point? I don't know. You see that? I'm honest with you. I don't know. And nobody else does either. They're all full of crap. Can it happen? Yes. Will it happen at some point? Almost assuredly. Almost assuredly, because if you know how they run the money system, you know, come on. What's the other option? But uh, if you want to get my whole take on hyperinflation, go to the survivalpodcast.com, put hyperinflation in the search box, and you'll find a show where I talk about it. And basically the upshot of that show is focus on yourself and your needs and your lifestyle planning and don't worry about it. 
Because it doesn't matter if it's hyperinflation or a pandemic, the effects and the things we're going to do without are the same. So we focused on the commonality of disaster. We do not focus on the specific threat. All right. Um, next question here. Um, few things I'd like your opinion on. What are your thoughts on private military contractors work in America in a shit-at-the-fan situation? How far do you see this going with privatization of this type? For example, do you see private, local, and state police replacing government and state-run ones? It gives me a couple articles about things like Blackwater uh, providing security in New Orleans during uh, the breakdown. Uh, I hate it. I don't think that that type of law enforcement belongs in the hands of companies that may use the opportunity to set things up so that they have more business. Let me put it to you this way. If you go to a chiropractor, he's probably going to tell you there's something wrong with your back. If you go to a dentist, he's probably going to try to find something wrong with your teeth. And he's going to give you a reason to come back in six months. When you're in business, you don't try to put yourself out of business. Make sense? So I think that when we let these private companies into these scenarios, we give them the opportunity to create a toehold where they don't go away because everybody wants recurring business. People that say, well, we need them, we can't do it alone, bullshit. It's called the National Guard, for God's sakes. And every governor has access to their National Guard. And people like Kathleen Sabikas in Kansas, when the Greenville tornado hit, they went, oh, we have too many assets in Iraq to be able to do this, and it's Bush's fault, are full of crap. Absolutely full of crap. If she was doing her job, the National Guard would have been rolling into that place as soon as the tornado left the ground. And that's reality. And there's a tremendous amount of National Guard assets in every state in the Union, even little tiny ones like Rhode Island. And that's your primary means. And if you use civilian volunteers, local police, sheriff's department, and the National Guard, any state should be able to handle the majority of the disasters that they would ever deal with unless we have the big one. And then the problem is going to be getting those people to show up. Because most of them are going to go take care of their own and abandon their post. Because their family's more important than um, what the gov government wants at that point. But in most situations, that's what we need. Then the next one. Uh, what are your thoughts on citizens policing their own neighborhoods during a shit hit the fan when local police are spread thin? Great. You got to do it with some organization and lawfulness. Uh, but I think that it, that's exactly what people need to do. I'm not going to go any deeper. He's got a real long question, but I want to get a bunch of questions in today. We're already running long. But absolutely, I think it makes sense for people to police their own neighborhoods. And I think we should be doing this every day right now. Does that mean that we walk around with armed posses in peacetime? No. But things like neighborhood watches, knowing all your neighbors, having phone numbers to a, a large quantity of the people in your neighborhood. To have an agreement, it doesn't even have to be that organized. Hey, you know what? Every night, 30 neighbors in a neighborhood of a uh, of hundred houses even make an agreement. Every night, one person's on duty, and we'll take a ride around the neighborhood right at, at the, the time sun goes down, one right around midnight, and one right around 2 a.m., and if they see anything, they'll call the police. You know, how much sacrifice is that really? And put up a sign, let people know you have neighborhood watching effect, things like that. Criminals pay attention to those signs, believe it or not. That's the lot, you know, the, the, the thing that criminals have in common, they all want the least resistance to their profit. They're all looking for the highest risk reward ratio in their favor. Okay? Is it 100% effective? No. Uh, but let's say things are really bad. Do you get your neighbors together? Do you put your guns on? And do you say, hey, you know what? Not here? You damn well do. You absolutely do. And uh, But that's something to talk about before it happens, not after it happens. 
If the police show up and tell you, put your shit away, we're here now, we're taking over, do you argue with the police and say, no, you're not doing a good enough job? No, you put your stuff away. But when they leave, if the threat's still around, you come back out. If they show up again and tell you to leave, you say, as long as you're here, as long as you're taking care of it, we'll stand down. But if you go away, we're standing up. Because somebody's got to protect our stuff. You know, the big thing with law enforcement in these situations is be as compliant as is possible and reasonable under the circumstances. Most cops don't want anybody breaking into your house any more than you do. Okay? Most law enforcement officers are great people that go into what they do to serve. All of them eventually become somewhat, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, God, I just can't think of it. Pessimistic and callous and, and, um, There's another word that just won't come to me right now, but what I mean is that the job wears on them. They become distrusting. I mean, as much as I love my brother-in-law, he is so paranoid that somebody's going to break into our house. He's like, I don't know if you have enough security here. You know, he was he's worried because we don't park our, our vehicles inside our garage. Well, I have a two-car garage and four vehicles. It's not going to happen anyway. Well, if they're outside, they're more likely to be... You know why? Because he sees it every day. Pessimistic is the word I'm looking at. And I think this happens to, you know, there's a lot of things that go on in combat. We have troops sometimes in combat that shoot people that they shouldn't shoot. I mean, if we're going to lie about that, then we're lying to ourselves. But you know what does it? Being shot at every day for a couple months and then making a mistake. And I think the same type of thing to a lesser degree happens with our law enforcement, and they get a bad rap for it sometimes. So the big thing that we learn from that is that we try to work with law enforcement wherever and whenever we can, but there are times when we have to stand up. I'll put it to you this way. To me, I read the question, hey, if somebody breaks in your house, do you shoot their ass before they damage your property or your person and then call the police, or do you call the police and wait and accept the fact that you might become a victim? Well, I think anybody with a brain would say, you shoot their ass and call 911. Hey, he broke in. I thought he was a threat. I popped him. Come get him off the floor. Right? And if you don't like that answer, don't break into people's houses at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to steal their stuff or harm the people inside the homes. It's a very simple solution. Well, I'm sorry, but I view my responsibility going a little bit further than the four walls of my home. My neighborhood, I live here. This is my community. My neighbors are my community members. Okay? I value their lives. I value their contribution to the community. I think they're important. I think that I am an important part of their lives. They're an important part of my life. So I view my neighborhood, I can't legally view it to the same level, but I view it sort of in the same framework. If you're going to come harm my neighbor, you're doing harm to me. So I'll defend my neighbor. I'll defend my neighborhood. I'll defend my community when the people that are supposed to do the job can't or won't. And then most of the time, understand, it's they can't. They could be spread thin, just like the person asked. Next one, this comes from uh, Aiden. Aiden says, hello, I'm 15, live in Louisiana. I've been practicing survival skills for a little over a year now. wanted to get into hunting. But I don't know how to go about getting proper papers to hunt and own a gun, or even the right type of gun and to get. Would you suggest, do I uh, need to keep cost in mind? I want to thank you for the podcast. I've gained so much knowledge from it. P.S. Sorry about spelling mistakes. All right, here, Aiden, here's the first thing you need to do. You need an adult. You need a responsible, well-trained adult because you ain't buying a gun until you're 18 on your own, and I actually am totally in favor 
of that law. So you need a parent involved with this, and if you do not have a parent, you need to find an, an adult mentor, and you have to be careful about that for obvious reasons. Um, but you need to start getting some training. So like the first step might be to find a local gun range and go get some safety, basic safety training, maybe take some skeet shooting classes and what have you. With a parental signature, you can probably go, or a parent going along with you, either one, you can go to some place like that and get proper training on safety and use. Before you put a gun in your hand as an owner, you need that. Many of us were blessed, like I was, to grow up in a family where we were taught gun safety and gun use from the time we were old enough to pick up our first BB gun. And I, you know, if you don't have that, you have to provide it for yourself. Do not be an irresponsible owner of firearms. Firearms are not a toy. They are not just a tool. They are a weapon. Some people get mad at me when I call my 22 I use for hunting squirrels a weapon. It is a weapon. It is a weapon because if it is fired inappropriately or on purpose, inappropriately, whether accidental or intentional, at someone's head, it will kill them or potentially wound them very severely. So it is a weapon. And we have to treat it like a weapon, which means responsibly and safety. So you need the training first and foremost. As far as paperwork, odds are, in Louisiana, like every other state that I know of, you're going to have to take what's called a hunter safety course. You can call your local game department, look them up online. They'll tell you available class times and things like that. You're probably looking at next year at this point, most likely for hunting anyway. 16 in most states you can hunt alone. So if you can get some training between now and next season, Um, you can go out there with a shotgun and shoot squirrels like that. Probably, I don't, I'm not sure of that. You're gonna have to check into that. But like in Pennsylvania, 16 was the age where I could take my shotgun, go out and hunt alone, and even if a game warden came by, he'd check my license and say, "Have fun, young man. Go by, go on." Right. So that's something you need to look into at the state level. But most states, in my understanding, is 16. Purchase of a firearm anywhere is going to be 18 and 21 for a handgun. Again, I support both of those. I really do. That doesn't mean an 18-year-old can't hunt with a handgun, but he sure can't go buy one. Right? And he has to be under direct supervision to do so. That's, that's, that's fine, in my, my view anyway. Um, guns are weapons, and we need to have some level of responsibility instilled in us and decision-making. So, so that's that. So the license is as simple as buying one after you take your hunter safety course. Guns, you don't need paperwork in the state of Louisiana for. You do have to be 18. You do need to get an adult involved in this at the age of 15. You're not old enough to do this stuff on your own. And I would tell you if you're 25, you still need a mentor and you still need training. Because none of us are born knowing exactly everything about a gun. And most accidents happen from people that aren't familiar with the gun that they're working with. So you need that training. You need to provide it for yourself, either through finding a private mentor that will work with you. You can ask if you go to church at your church. I guarantee you there's probably some men in your church in Louisiana if you go to church that would be happy to, to be a mentor to you in this. If you don't have, I, I get the feeling there's not a parental influence on this, uh, but maybe you can get parental support. A lot of times parents that don't hunt are not opposed to you learning to hunt or learning to shoot or anything like that, but they don't know how to help you and they don't really have, and they don't want to get involved. So ask for parental support. Um, but you absolutely have no business owning a weapon, even if somebody else purchased it for you as a gift or something in a way that would be legal uh, for you to use without parental permission until you're 18. At 18, if you're paying your own bills, you do what you want. But please take the, the responsibility, the responsible pathway to these things. Uh, next question. Jack, this comes from Woody. Hey, Jack, I sent this to you a while ago, but I uh, put the wrong subject, so it may have been filtered. 
And here's what Woody says in his original email. I was thinking about debt. I have some debt. I always heard, ah, oh, I hate paying bills. What came to me recently was, man, I love paying my credit card bills. And that is honest. I just thought you might want to share this perspective whenever you talk about debt. We can get to a point where we love paying our credit card bills because that brings us $600, in my case, closer to being free of debt. I just thought I'd share that with you. You've been a contributing factor uh, to my declaration of independence from debt. Thank you, Woody. I completely agree. I'll tell you, <clears throat> when we were working our way out of debt, in the very beginning, <clears throat> it was a very miserable thing because at the same time, we were sending all this money off to these evil credit card people when we were really the ones that made the bad decision. We were sacrificing. So the sacrifice was new and the dent seemed small. Even when you send a $900 or $1,000 payment to a credit card company and you have over $25,000 in debt, it seems so small. And it seems like the sacrifice is so big and the, the savings account didn't go up this month and the debt barely went down and we didn't get to go out to eat and this all sucks. And then you pay it again and you pay it somewhere about the middle. You cross a halfway point. You've become completely accustomed to this. The sacrifices don't even feel like sacrifices anymore. Now that's just how you live. And the debt end is in sight. And you, you then all of a sudden you get a, And here's what happens. I, I don't care how little money you have. When you reach the half point in your debt, you will find more money. You will either get more money from income. You will sell stuff. You'll do stuff. All of a sudden, there'll be more money available. And a lot of times it was money that would have been there anyway, but now you see it differently. Instead of that, that $100 check that just showed up from a friend that owed you money you forgot about being $100 to go blow, that's $100 on the debt. And everything that happens like that, you'll throw it at the debt. And the next thing you know, the debt's gone. And for the first time in most people's lives, then they know true liberty. Uh, so I completely agree with Woody on that one. Um, Okay, let's take one more. I know we're over time, but I'm trying to get a lot of them done. There's even some here that I'll push till next week. Uh, but uh, let's let's do one more. This comes from Daniel. Daniel says, um, Jack, during a shit hit the fan event, people's personal hygiene will be less than ideal. Parasites such as fleas, lice, scabies, and worms will become a problem. We should know how to treat these ailments on our own. Are there home remedies we can use? Do we need to stock up on medicines? Are there veterinary equivalents that we can dilute without a prescription? I think this is a very relevant, important topic. Thanks for all you do. My eyes have been open, and your podcast has validated the uneasiness that I've been feeling in my spirit. I've been trying to wake up my friends when it comes when it's coming, but they haven't taken the blue pill from the Matrix yet. I feel I've grown in wisdom and understanding as a result of your podcast. Um, well, first of all, I mean, with anything that can be easily treated with over-the-counter medication, um, like scabies and like worms, you know, go get... The stuff that works over the counter, keep it in reserve. It's all cheap stuff. And as it reaches expiration dates, donate it or something, Goodwill or whatever, throw it away and get new stuff. I mean, that's that's one of the big things that we can do right there. The other thing is we do need to learn more about herbal treatments. I mean, if we look at things like parasites, like scabies are actually little mites. That's what they really are. And if we want something that's going um, going to work good for that, a topical application of an herb called L-Campaign. Uh, L campaign, like uh, almost like uh, like a camp, like a military campaign. I think that's how it's pronounced. Anyway, it's also known as horse heel, yellow starwort, uh, wild sunflower. Um, it has a lot of different names. I'll put a link where you can learn more about it. But it actually works very well for a lot of uh, infections like that, and uh, it's pretty common. 
And there are other things that we can use for parasitic infections. Neem oil, uh, you're not going to grow your own, but that's something that you, it stores damn near forever. So having some neem oil around. Uh, tamu oil is another good antifungal. Geranium oil. Uh, geraniums you can grow damn near anywhere. That has a very antifungal, anti-insecticide uh, component to it. But the big thing that we want to do with sanitation when it comes to shit at the fan is have a plan. Um, this is why people often ask me, do you store anything that people kind of think is just odd and not really a typical prepper thing? And I often say, well, toothpaste, shampoo, soap, lotions, hand cleaner, um, toiletry items, all of that stuff. We have a huge supply of that, and there's a reason. Um, it, most people in these scenarios die of disease and illness from lack of hygiene. Uh, usually, you can you can somehow you're going to find a way to feed yourself and get some water, uh, but it's either sanitation problems with the water, sanitation environment you know, around the environment around you, and things like that, or even just being miserable from it. So that's one thing is have all those things in place. The next thing is like you got this is kind of gross, but you got to think about what are you going to do with your waste. You know, you can't go start making piles in the yard like dog. Uh, especially long term with a whole household of people, especially if you're in suburbia. So simple things like, you know, what Ron Hood recommends in one of his videos. Get a big uh, box of garbage bags, a couple jugs of that chemical toilet stuff that uh, the uh, that they use in uh, like porta-potties and stuff like that, and, and, a, and a toilet seat sitting on top of a bucket. And when the bag gets full enough, you, you, you dump some more extra of the, the blue stuff in there and tie it up and, you know... Get rid of it as best you can under the circumstances. It's gross, but it's better than the alternative. You know, there's could become times where we can't flush toilets and things like that. So we have to think that way. So it's more about prevention than response. Because most of these things, if we think about it properly, can be dealt with. Even your waste. All right? If we, if, if you live in suburbia, this is tough. But if you have a place with even a couple acres in the country, you know, you dig a hole once a day and you bury it. And it works pretty good. And this can be overthought, too. If you think about it this way, thousands and thousands and millions of animals run around the forest and do their due every day, and the world doesn't blow up. right? So um, human waste can be a real cause of disease spreading and things like that, but it also can be overreacted to. It's about the concentration all in one area, and it's just gross, and, and then you also have potential for disease. So... All of these things, the best plans are, one, have a plan to deal with the situation and the stuff you need to to prevent it from going downhill. Two, have the medical treatments available for whatever you can come up with that could be bad in your area. You know, one of the things Brandon talked about when we just had him on talking about Haiti, most of the people down there are dying, dying of diarrhea. So diarrhea medications, that's something anybody can do when it's cheap. These are the types of things that you need to have. Yes, fungal infections, parasitic infections, worms. Uh, there are over-the-counter treatments for all of this stuff. And there are herbal options as well. Learn about herbal medicine. And learn about herbal medicine not so much with, oh, well, there's this herb that grows in China that can do the same thing. I mean, that's not very practical. Learn the plants that are in your area. And learn to do as much with as little as possible. That's a great way to ensure yourself for the future. Um, it's amazing what something simple that you can grow in your garden like calendula can do. It's one of the most medicinal flowers and plants on the planet. Most people could grow it so easily, and they have no idea how valuable it is. Comfrey and calendula together is a drawing agent. We have a wound with infection, and a poultice made from comfrey and calendula 
uh, and dandelion as well, would do so much drawing to draw that infection out and have a marked uh, antibacterial effect as well. So, so learn these additional things. Learn these skills. Buy books. Learn to use the plants in your area. And if something doesn't grow in your area you think it's important, grow it in your garden and save it. Uh, you know, At the end of the year when it's done growing, cut it, dry it, put it away, uh, and grow it next year, year after year after year. Learn to do these things. They may become one of the most important things in the world in the future. Um, one of the biggest things we can do with the healthcare crisis is learn to take care of our own health better. And with that, I think I will wrap up. Again, I know we went long today, but I'm trying to get more and more into these shows because you guys sent me so many great questions. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Show you.